Everyone, we've come to a time where we're going to read the Bible together. Um, our first reading, you'll see it on the screen there. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, verse 1 to 11. Uh, and then after that, we're going to hop over to 9, 1 to 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters. Um, yeah. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their faith, face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws that I give you today. Uh, and that next Bible reading um, of this first bit uh, is from chapter 9, 1 to 6. Hear, Israel, uh, you are about to cross the Jordan to go into in and dispossess nations, greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them, and you've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Chapter 10, verse 12 to 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, 
even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. For the Lord your God, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oath in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening, church. Lovely to be here tonight. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, if you're watching online, we are in some quite tricky chapters in Deuteronomy. I'm sure you felt that as it was read. And so I'm going to pray for us as we come to God's word tonight. So, Please join me as I pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word says that when your word goes out, it will not return empty. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and wills that will be conformed to your will. Uh, speak powerfully to us tonight. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to ask, uh, have you ever had what I call a, a wow moment in life? Uh, those moments where you're just sort of so in awe of something, you, you, it almost takes your breath away. Uh, I remember being in South Africa about 25 years ago on a safari, just driving along, and out of nowhere, uh, pounced this majestic, beautiful lion, and he just devoured the prey. And I'm going, whoa, wow. It was utterly amazing. I remember being at the uh, Grand Canyon, must be 30 years ago, and I'd seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, but nothing quite prepares you for seeing it in the flesh. It is so vast. It is so huge. It blows your mind, and you feel about this big. And I just stood there and goes, wow. I remember being at a church, sitting in a church, a little church in London, uh, exquisite architecture, beautiful stained glass, and a choir were performing Foray's Requiem, one of my favorite pieces of music. And they were singing P.A. Yezu, and I was just overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty and the love of God. Wow. I remember being in my room in London, and I was just kneeling by my bed, and I had tears rolling down my cheeks. Why? Because, because I stuffed up again. I'd sinned yet again. And I knelt beside my bed, sort of almost asking again and again, God, please forgive me, please forgive me. I remember just being overwhelmed by this sense 
that my God had forgiven me again. Wow, how good is God? You ever had that experience with God? You ever experienced his might or his power or his majesty or his beauty or his holiness or his forgiveness? It just takes your breath away. You go, wow, I hope you have. I hope your experience of God is not just just shallow and safe and limited and little. Because our God is big and mighty and majestic and powerful. The Bible says our God is holy. Our God is holy. One of my favorite bits of scripture is from Isaiah chapter 6. Where the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God. He sees God high and exalted and seated on the throne, Isaiah 6 verse 1. So God's on his throne. Not you, not me, not your boss, not the queen, not Scott Morrison. God's on his throne. And on his throne, he has this vision of God and the train of his robe fills the temple, just the train, because that's how big God is. And there's these seraphim, these, these heavenly creatures with wings everywhere, and they're covering their eyes. And as they see God in his glory, they burst out in song. And they don't sing, they hold me close, let your love surround me. And they don't sing, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. And they don't even sing Amazing Grace. They sing, holy, 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 holy. Because that's who our God is. He is holy, holy, holy. He is, he's set apart. He is other. He is totally majestic and perfect and pure. And there's no one like him. Holy, holy, holy. And I know that you know that in the Bible, if you, if you want to emphasize something, you just repeat the same word. In English, we have something called superlatives. You say, good, better, best, fast, faster, fastest. You don't do that in the Bible. You just repeat the same word. You say, good, good, or fast, fast. And there's lots of words in the Bible that are repeated twice, like love, love, grace, grace, mercy, mercy. And there's one word, just one word that's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the God that we worship. Holier than holy than holy. Totally set apart, totally different, totally majestic, totally pure and perfect. Now, do you know that God? Have you experienced the holiness of God? Because my fear is that we just focus on his love and his kindness and his grace and his mercy. And that is good and right and proper. But please don't forget that we worship a holy God. You will never grasp these chapters in Deuteronomy 7 to 10 until you realize that our God is holy. We're in Deuteronomy. If you just join us, it's a, it's a great book of the Old Testament. Uh, Moses is 120 years old. They're standing on the edge of this promised land. These are the last three speeches of Moses. Uh, but they've stood here before, 38 years before. Their parents are in exactly the same spot and God had said to their parents, God had promised their parents, you'll go in and you'll take possession of this land. I'll go with you. I'll go ahead of you. But their parents doubted God's power. They doubted God's promise. They doubted God's presence. They said, we can't do this. And because of that, they wandered for 38 years. But now they're back. 
on the edge, about to enter this beautiful promised land, flow with milk and honey. Now here's the problem. In this land are Canaanites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, Girgashites, and all these other ites, all these other people who, who do not worship the holy God. These people in the land think differently, live differently. They're not like God's people. And God in his kindness is saying to his people, when you enter this land, do not be like them. Don't think like they think. You're different. You're set apart. You're called to be holy because I am holy. That's what we're looking at tonight. Our, our key verse is chapter 7, verse 6. It's on the screen. It's a great verse. This is, a, this is your memory verse. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. Uh, two simple points tonight. Here's the first one. You're chosen by a holy God. A chosen by a holy God. Let's leave that verse up on the screen for the whole sermon, please. Chosen by a holy God. See that in verse 6? The Lord your God has, has chosen you. Uh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the, the God who is full of compassion, slow to anger, abandoning love. That's the God who saw you and chose you or elected you. Moses is saying to Israel, to the Jewish nation, out of all the people on the face of this earth, God saw you and chose you. And he called you his treasured possession, his beautiful people. Now, friends, if you're a Christian here tonight... If you believe in Jesus, you have been chosen by this holy God. That's what the Bible says, Ephesians 1 verse 4, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. So before you were born, God chose you, God saw you. Before you could do anything good or bad, he knew you. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's a difficult doctrine that we call election or God's choosing and people often say to me, oh, Paul, I, I don't like that doctrine. <laughs> That's so unfair. Why does God choose some and not others? And the only answer there is, I, is, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not God. But we do know this. We do know that none of us deserve to be chosen, don't we? God says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Does a clay have the right to say to the potter, make me like this? No, no, God is God and we are not. God chooses and we don't. So why does God choose people? Why does the Holy God choose you? It's not because of you. It's not because you were good or godly or good looking. It's all about God. Do you spot that? 7 verse 7. The Lord your God has chosen you, verse 6. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He's saying it wasn't because the Israelites were strong and big and mighty. No, the Israelites were tiny, insignificant nation in the eyes of the world. They were puny. Same today. Please don't think you were strong or mighty or capable or powerful. It's not because of your size. And it's not because we were righteous. In that second reading that Johnny read from chapter 9, three times 
God reminds his people it's not because of their righteousness. So chapter 9, verse 4. But when you go in, don't say it's because of my righteousness. Or verse 5 of chapter 9, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in. Or chapter 9, verse 6, understand then, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess. So it wasn't because God's people were righteous. It's not because we're nice, good, kind, upright people that God chooses us. Uh, God doesn't say, oh, he's a nice boy, I'll choose him. And praise God for that. Because self-righteousness stinks, doesn't it? You ever met those people who think they're really, really, really special and good? It's horrible, isn't it? They're proud people. No, verse 6 of chapter 9, the Israelites were stiff-necked people. They were stubborn, they were rebellious, and we are no better than them. The Israelites, whilst Moses was up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were down the mountain dancing around a golden calf. So please never think you deserve to be chosen. We don't deserve to be chosen, we deserve condemnation. What we really deserve is wrath and judgment. Remember Isaiah, when he'd seen the holiness of God, Isaiah says, wow, God, but then he says, woe is me. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Who will atone for my sin? Because before a holy God who is perfect in purity, all our good deeds are just filthy rags. We are not righteous. Billy Graham says, only when you understand the holiness of God will you understand the depth of your sin. And he's right. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. Evil must be punished. Wickedness cannot be swept under the carpet. God's holiness demands justice and punishment. And if you struggle with the doctrine of election, I'm sure you also struggle with the doctrine of judgment. You ever watch the news and you've seen the most heinous, terrible crimes? And everything within you just cries out for justice or some kind of punishment. If you've grasped how holy God is, then you will say, woe is me. And I know chapter 7 of Deuteronomy is a very difficult chapter to read, all that talk of God driving out the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the other ites. And that command in 7 verse 2 to destroy them totally, it sounds terrible. It is terrible. Please be very careful how you read this chapter and how you apply this chapter. These kind of chapters are not in the Bible to ever excuse things like ethnic cleansing or genocide. That's always wrong. They're never used to promote or glorify war or to excuse things like the Crusades, which were always abhorrent. Now, this driving out of these nations was a never-to-be-repeated war because God's people had been promised this land. And to occupy this land, all wickedness needed to be driven out. Because you've got to realize this. These Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the, the, the Girgashites, they were not innocent people. They were horrible people, vile people. Just read Deuteronomy 12, verse 30, about the Canaanites burning their own children as sacrifices to their gods. That is yucky, isn't it? 
Read Leviticus 18, verse 25, where God is so repulsed and disgusted by their behavior, he wants to vomit them out. And for 830 years, God has watched these Amorites and Canaanites just rebel and spiral into moral depravity. And he's warned them and he's warned them so many times, but they would not listen. It's like a landlord who lets his tenants live rent-free for 830 years. Now, God is very slow to anger. He is so patient. But his wrath is the right response to unrepentant, abhorrent, persistent sin. And it sounds terrible, but actually it's fair. We deserve judgment. Not to be chosen, but to be condemned. Can I say, you will never really understand Christianity without understanding the judgment of God. If you, if you don't understand that, 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 that your sin has been poured onto Jesus and, and Jesus has taken the wrath that you deserve, you won't understand Christianity. Unless you understand that, unless you shelter under the cross of Christ, unless you allow Jesus to pay the punishment for you, to experience the wrath of God on your behalf, you haven't grasped Christianity. But when you've grasped that, then you just go, wow, wow, I don't deserve that. Now, I know this sermon is heavy. I tried so hard last night to lighten it. Now, we are chosen, not because we are wonderful. No, we're wicked. So why does this holy God choose us? Why on earth would he choose us? Did you hear the answer? Do you believe this answer? Chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other people. No, verse 8. Here it is. But, this is why, it was because the Lord loved you. He loved you. He set his affection on you, verse 7. That's an emotional word. God is in love with you. Not because you're lovable. And it's not just a transaction. God is not just saying, well, I promised them the land. I must keep my promise. No, he loves you. How did he love these people? Verse 8. Well, he redeemed them from the land of slavery. He heard their cries. He saw their pain. And with his outstretched arm, his mighty arm, he redeemed them through that Red Sea and carried them to redemption. So how do you know God loves you? God sees your pain, he hears your cries, and he carries you to redemption, not through a Red Sea, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not through the blood on the doorpost, but the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is love. Not that you love God, but God loved us and sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to, as a atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe the mighty, majestic, glorious, holy God loves you not because you're strong or mighty or good or righteous, just because he loves you. That's your identity. It's Colossians 3, verse 16. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's who you are tonight. The eminent theologian, Karl Barth, who's got a brain the size of a planet, was asked once what his most the deepest theological insight he'd ever gleaned about God. He thought for a second, just said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. 
you're loved by a holy God. So chosen by a holy God. And then secondly, we are called to be a holy people. Chosen by a holy God and called to be a holy people. See that verse verse 6? 7 verse 6 again, your memory verse. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Set apart for God. Set apart from the world. That's who you are. You're called to be holy. Oswald Chambers said that holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of people. He's right. God does not say, be happy because I am happy. God says, be holy because I am holy. And when you've seen and grasped and experienced the, the holiness of God, you should want to pursue holiness, to strive for holiness, to be like your God. And sure, you'll never make it. And sure, you'll keep on failing. But that's the path we're called to walk, to pursue holiness. It's another reason why God drove out those Canaanites. Because Israel were his treasured possession. They were precious to him. And he's like a protective father. He, he wants the best for his kids. He wants to help them. He wants to remove all temptations, to remove the wickedness. It's like a good surgeon who re- removes something so the whole body can function well. Now again, remember, we, we are not Israel. but We are not a nation of Israel heading towards this promised land. We're not a Christian nation entering this promised land called Sydney. This is not the promised land as good as it gets. We're heading to a promised land called heaven. And we're not driving out all the wickedness of Sydney. But as individuals and as a church, we are called to drive out all the wickedness and sin in our own lives. To say no to ungodliness. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Put off evil, put on on goodness. Jesus says, as my treasured possession, you to live in the world but not be of the world. And that's hard, isn't it? Because we're surrounded by temptation and wickedness. Set apart for God. I want to say that the more you experience God in his majesty and glory, the more that you'll want and desire to be holy. But we're set apart from the world. A, a couple of times Moses warns the Israelites of the dangers of being ensnared by those around them. Chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Do not look on the other nations with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a, a snare to you. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 25, the the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. You'll be trapped by it. See, God loves them enough to warn them as they live in this world, live surrounded by these nations, there are things there that will trap them. And I hope you know that. All the stuff around us, it's not going to lead us towards God. All the things the world calls harmless is not harmless. The violence on TV is not harmless. The sexual images plastered everywhere is not harmless. The foul language, the abusive behavior is not harmless. We should hate those things. Not even a hint of those things. Run away from those things. Have nothing to do with them. So how do you pursue holiness? There's a great phrase in our... Last reading in chapter 10. Turn to that, chapter 10. 
He basically summarizes chapter 7. Chapter 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. So everything belongs to God. He needs nothing. Chapter 10, verse 15. Yet, here it is again. The Lord set his affection. He loved you, and he chose you. So, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. That's the way to be holy. Circumcise your hearts and get rid of your stubbornness. This idea of circumcising your heart, it, it's not an outward circumcision, it's an inner change. It, it's cutting away all the stuff in your mind that's not going to be helpful for holiness. It's training your eyes to see what is pure and right. It, it's training your ears to listen to what is helpful. It's loving God more than you love your sinful nature. Having a soft heart towards God, a heart that you long for God to mould more to his image. It's being open to the work of the Holy Spirit, saying, change me, please change me. But I, I do think there's a few lessons we can learn about holiness from the Israelites. Because whatever, whatever sin or temptation you're facing right now, whatever battle you're facing for your godliness and your holiness, please fight in God's power. Fighting God's power, not your own strength. You cannot change yourself, but God can. Do you remember 38 years before their parents stood at the edge of the promised land and they sent spies in? Remember that? And all the spies said, oh, the people are too big and the walls are so high, we can't do this. When Moses repeats exactly the same thing in chapter 7, verse 17, 7 verse 17, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But don't be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Whatever battle you are facing, whatever temptation you are facing, whatever sin you're, you're seeking to purge yourself of, remember that God is able and powerful to change you and cleanse you. But you've got to fight. J.C. Ra says we must fight. Where there's grace, there'll be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There's no holiness without warfare. And saved souls will always be found to have a fight, but fighting in God's power. And you don't fight alone. God doesn't save you and love you and then leave you to your own devices. He's with you. 7 verse 21, Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you, who dwells among you, who tabernacles among you, who never leaves you nor forsakes you. He is your great and awesome God. So the Holy God is driving out sin in my life. He's doing it bit by bit. That's his normal process, bit by bit, little by little. I love that phrase in verse 22 of chapter 7. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You won't be allowed to eliminate them all at once. Since he goes normal practice when it comes to driving out sin and to cleansing us. It's not that spectacular instantaneous victory is little by little, bit by bit, day by day, chipping away at all the ugliness, all the selfishness, all the pride. He's just gradually changing us. It's one of the reasons I keep a journal. Love looking back on all the ways that God has grown me in holiness over the years.
The Christian life is a life of holiness. But there are two areas I want to quickly finish with. The first is very unpopular, but it is true. God says, be holy. Be holy in your relationships. He says to his people in chapter 7, verse 3, do not intermarry with the other nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Now, he's not talking about mixed-race marriages here. That's a beautiful thing when you've got two Christians of different ethnicities who come together in Christ. That's a mark of grace. He's talking about mixed religious marriages. He's saying don't intermarry with someone who doesn't believe in your God. Don't marry somebody who believes in a different God or has no gods. That would be disastrous. Remember King Solomon? He was supposed to be the, the wisest person on earth, but he made some stupid decisions. One of those was marrying women who, from other nations who turned his heart away from God. It's like the Apostle Paul says, do not be yoked with an unbeliever. And, and I know that verse is not just about marriage, but it does apply to marriage. Uh, yoke is a, a farming illustration where you had two oxen who had this, this wooden beam across their heads and that these two oxen would work together to plough the field. And a wise farmer would always pick two animals of the same strength and the same size and the same temperament and the same species so they could pull together in the same direction because it's disastrous when one is pulling in this way and one is pulling in this way. And God says to his people, he loves his people enough to say, if you're not yet married, make sure that the person that you choose to marry is going to say that head the same direction that you're heading, working together for God. I'm constantly having conversations to say, oh, well, my relationship is different. He or she doesn't mind me coming to church. I might bring them to Christ. You might bring them to Christ. And praise God if you do. Or they might pull you away from Christ, which is more often the case. So be holy in who you choose to pursue in marriage. And then positively be holy in justice. I love how this section ends. And I'll end with this. Chapter 10, verse 18. Our God, our holy God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing amongst you, giving them food and clothing. That is our God. In all his holiness and majesty and might and glory, he cares for the people that our world often neglects. He sees the fathers, he sees the widow, he sees those in need, and he provides and cares for them. And here's the punchline, verse 19, and you too, you are to love those who are foreigners. If we're claiming to be God's treasure possession, if we're claiming to be holy like God is holy, then make sure your life is marked of one of compassion and kindness and justice. Pursue justice for the refugee. Care for the immigrant. Provide for the single parent. It's not about exploiting people with low wages. I had a massive privilege last week of going to a a book launch for Andrew Browning, one of our, our mission partners. What a great, godly, holy man he is. He's dedicated his life to caring and healing women in Africa that our world just ignores. 
One of a good read is called A Doctor in Africa. He's pursuing justice because he wants to be holy. And so church, part of our holiness is to, to speak up for justice, to oppose exploitation of vulnerable people, to help the poor and to help the helpless to shun corruption. Someone asked, when will injustice be abolished here? And the answer was, when those who are not wronged feel as indignant as those who are wronged. And we as holy people should feel indignant when we see those on the margin being abused. So be holy, because your God is holy. He's chosen you. Why? Because he loves you, and he calls you to be holy because he is holy.